0: Well, good morning. There you are. Isn't this back here spectacular? Uh, the I think I have this right. The Mark Holmes team, the creative team, those the, those folks, they did all this, and it's just terrific. The other two cool things. First of all, baptismal Sunday is out of the park. Isn't that a good? I mean, I think we just. And this is the inaugural Sunday. First time ever. For Nikki, who's responsible for serving and, and helping and guiding and overseeing young folks in this congregation. This is the first time she did what she just did. It's the hardest thing to do, to do the announcements and have people not fall asleep. I mean, to do stuff like that and to welcome you. A, and I like it that she just has long boots. I love those boots. So let's hear it for Nikki. She's right over there somewhere. I told her before this service I wasn't going to do that again, but I changed my mind. So there you go. So the, the, the theme of the next three weekends, this trilogy for Advent season, An Advent, which is the traditional church language for Christmas, it means the coming, the appearing of something notable or new or somebody. But the, the, the overarching theme, we've entitled, what? Awestruck by Glory. I love the question, what? Because when it comes to the story in this book, any of the people in the story would be saying that. If you're Joseph or Mary, you're saying, What? If you're Elizabeth, who's not supposed to have a child, you're married to this old guy, Zachariah, and they're saying, What? And the shepherds, the lights show up and the angels and the choir and all that, they're saying, What? Even the sheep probably are saying, What? You know, and and even Herod the king saying, What? There's a new king in town. Nobody told me. And then when they told him, he wanted to kill him. But awestruck by glory is the tagline, and that's where we're going today. And the, the, the um, title, I like little titles, it helps me, uh, for this message is from cosmos, which we saw, from cosmos to cradle. Awestruck is an interesting word. When I think of awestruck, I'm thinking of overwhelming, stunned. And it was interesting. When I was preparing this message, my mind didn't go to Fourth of July celebrations in Boston back in 1983 when we had our family and a quarter of a million people down with John Williams who did the Star Wars thing. He's leading the Boston Pops and we're all singing, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. I mean, it was, a, it was great. But awestruck for me took me back to 1951. I'm a nine-year-old kid and I'm in North Carolina. My parents had just come back. We had just come back from India after four or five years. And, and uh, the missions agency that they were connected with sent them to nor- sent my dad to North Carolina and Tennessee to speak in little churches. They had lots of little congregations that um, were wonderful people, very giving people. But they didn't know much about what we called foreign missions at that time. So he was to go there and show his... Movies of India. We had movies of elephants and festivals and firewalkers and all this. And for 40 nights, every night we went to a different place. And you know, by the end of the 40 nights, I could do his talk. That that's kind of how that worked. But the last uh, week, we took a little boat across a thing called Pamlico Sound on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. That's the farther, farthermost eastern part of North Carolina. Here's a picture of the Outer Banks. This is a map. If you go way to the top where that island is up there, it's a place called Nags Head and Kill Devil's Hill. That's where the Wright brothers, uh, back in the day, 1901 or whatever it was, 1904, did their flight up there. But this is an historic area. That whole area in the middle between the Outer Banks and the mainland is called Pamlico Sound. It is a a place that's that's 80, 80 miles long and 20 miles wide at the widest. 25 feet deep at the deepest, and it's full of fish. And so they have long net fishermen who for decades and centuries have fished that inner part. Then you have other fishermen that go out to the Atlantic. That whole eastern seaboard, or that, that whole line there, is a thin spit of land that just comes down, and they're little tiny villages. Some of you ladies, I didn't say this in the other service. some of you ladies might read romance novels by this guy Nicholas Sparks, and they have this night in Rodanth and all this kind of stuff. Those are the little villages out there, Rodanthe, Buxton, Avon, all these little villages that were fishing villages historically. That's the enterprise for that whole area. And, and they were so distinct in their language when the English settled there in the late 1500s, or tried to, they're so distinct in the language that back in the day you could tell which village on that, on that Outer Banks area that the person came from by their accent. So they've always been sort of cut off, if you will. And, uh, you know, this is a great place for pirates like Blackbeard and those. It's called the Graveyard of the Atlantic because there are hundreds of ships that have sunk off this coast. And my dad and I came along and went down to the village of Hattress. And there's an arrow that will show up just like that. I love doing that all four services. I point and that arrow shows up. It's, it's raw power. Anyway, and so I'm a nine year old and I get off the pier, off the mailboat. There's no bridge out there at that time, now there is. And I get off and climb onto the pier and I'm awestruck. Now I've, I've had 40 nights of elephants and firewalkers and all this kind of stuff. And I look down the beach and it looks like the whole beach is moving. It is thousands, thousands of fiddler crabs, as far as I can see, that are scuttling sideways and into their holes and into the water. And when you're nine years old, you forget elephants like that if you can see a whole moving beach of fiddler crabs. That's what you call awestruck, okay? That's a nine-year-old, awestruck. I would be back on that pier 21 years later, and I'll tell you about that in a few moments. Cosmos to cradle. The 30,000-foot view of the great God out there, and how does he become the great God in here? How does that work? I'm going to note four men to help me do this. One is John, the author of John's Gospel. The other is John the Baptist that he brings up in the first page of his Gospel. Another is a fellow named Howard Momstead that I've talked to you about before. He was a scientist at the University of Illinois, a specialist in light. And then a friend that I met on that pier 21 years later by the name of Charles Daniels, who was one of those long net fishermen from the Outer Banks, and I'll introduce you to here. We're going to track the Christmas story from the great out there to the great in here. And which gospel does that piece best? I think it's the Gospel of John. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are four writings. Many of you know this. There are four writings about this Jesus of Nazareth person, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the dates and the times and the places and the events and so forth. But John has an agenda where he wants us to believe. That, that's his agenda from the get-go, and he tells you that. And, but in the, on the first page, he gets into this cosmos-to-cradle View. He gives you a front row seat to this large panoramic picture. Uh, who is this John? Well, John was a fisherman, like my friend that I'm going to introduce you to. John grew up in a commercial fishing family on the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman turned follower of Jesus. He was a fisherman turned church leader later. And then fisherman turned exile because the Roman government in the first century exiled into an island out in the, out in the Mediterranean. But at this writing, he's a young fisherman turned old man. It's estimated that the Gospel of John was probably written in the 80s of the first century. And so Jesus had been gone for 50 years at that time. And here's John, who's probably himself in his 80s. And what's interesting about him is why does he write the way he does? And we'll see how that is in just a moment. Why does he write the way he does? I think this. I think he got the way he writes from his early years, growing up in a commercial fishing family on the Sea of Galilee. Because fishermen, and some of you are fishermen, fishermen read the sea or read the water. Fishermen read the weather. Let's say, can you imagine this? Let's say John was 19 or early 20s when he meets Jesus, this itinerant preacher, this rabbi from a village 20 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee up in the hills called Nazareth. Jesus comes up to the Sea of Galilee. St. John meets him with his brother James. And uh, Jesus sees what John does every night. Every night John and James, their dad and whomever, get in a boat and go out to fish at night. That's how they fished back in the day. They used linen nets, and apparently the fish could not see the linen nets at night like they could in the daytime. And um, it's interesting, back in 1986, they had a drought in Galilee, and the waters receded in the Sea of Galilee, exposing more of the banks, and two fishing brothers, like James and John, were walking along the seashore looking for artifacts. Maybe something would be exposed from an earlier time. And they saw a mound, and they went over to the mound, and they, they thought it looked maybe like a boat or something, and they called the archaeologists. They came, dug it up, and in fact, it was the remnants of, the boat, of a boat from the first century A.D. And here's a picture of it. It's in a museum on the Sea of Galilee now. It's called the Jesus Boat. It's the typical of the kinds of boats they would use. It's 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four feet at the gunwale on the sides. It had room for four rowers and for a single masted sail. So when you think of the stories in the Gospels of guys being in storms on the Sea of Galilee, you got four rowers, right? And when, Jesus, when Peter wants to walk on the water, he doesn't like have to jump because the boat's on its side. He just steps right out. It's an easy move, you know. But the point is this that. Every night, all of John's growing up years, that's the kind of boat he would be on. They think it looked like this back in the day, like that. 13 or 12 or 13 different kinds of wood found in that area comprised the boat. And he was on on the Sea of Galilee. You say, well, how how big is that? Is that like a lake, like, uh, like I don't know, Horsetooth Reservoir? No, no, it was bigger than that. Fort Collins is 57 square miles. That's the size of the city. Sea of Galilee is 64 square miles, so it would would engulf, plus a little space for a new Holiday Inn over on the side there, okay? And they would sail when the light was going down at sunset to go fish, and they would sail back in when the light was coming up. So John is familiar with light, okay? Night after night on the water. There's no artificial lighting back in the first century. There wasn't artificial light for hundreds of years to be used at, at night, but there wasn't the kind of lights you'd have in a city, so there was no uh, dimming of the of the night sky, and night after night they'd be out in the boats, and there'd be the Milky Way and the Belt of Orion and all that stuff. They didn't name it that at the time, I'm sure, but the fact is it was there, and, and there they were on the water with the moon shining down at some point, and they would they would be seeing all of those things, the nebulae and the, the galaxies, if you will, and shooting stars and meteor showers. I would submit that all of that informs the way John writes about light. That's, that's just folks' conjecture. Don't, you can't take it to the bank, but take it near the bank, okay? And when you're a fisherman like that, I only know one long net fisherman, and you're going to meet him in a few moments. I only know one. But what I find out about fishermen who spend a lot of time on the water, pretty much alone, is that they think about stuff. They like become philosophers or theologians or something. They think deeply about the natural world because that's their world. This is not book learning. This is like aquatic learning. This is this is, this is business, all that kind of stuff. So when you read the Gospels, when the story of Jesus starts, Matthew introduces us to Jesus, the son of David. You get all the genealogies, right? You get to Luke, and Luke introduces, to, to, in, introduces us to Jesus, the son of man. When you read John, he takes you straight to Jesus, the son of God. He introduces you to deity on the first page of writing. And so what he writes on the first page, John writes a song for the ages, you say, this fisherman guy wrote a song. Well, he didn't know like he was writing a song. He, didn't, he just thought he was writing, I'm sure, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But um, later, the early church, most scholars think, used the first 14 to 18 verses of John as a song that they would sing when they get together. And when you read the lyrics... It is like a powerful song, not like a powerful song. It is a powerful song. So here are the first three verses. I'd like you to read them, read the lyrics, if you will, of the song out loud with me. Let's do it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So here's, here's the thought in response to that. John is saying Jesus Christ is the very speech, the voice of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the speech of God the Father. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, when you speak, I find out who you are. I mean, if we had a screen here so you couldn't see me, which, which might be a blessing, but you put a screen here so you can't see me, you wouldn't know who was here till I spoke. And when I said something like, well, good morning, you'd say, well, I'm not sure who that is, but I know it's not Pastor Jeff. So I got that part, right? (laughs) Or it's not Pastor Derry, or I'm sure it's not Mackenzie. You know, we, we got that. It's said that babies in their third trimester in utero, in the womb, know their mother's voices. They can hear their mother's voices and they get attuned to that. And when you hear someone's voice, it, 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 it's their character, right? Years ago, I had a radio program back 100 years ago when they had these things, a 10-minute radio program on CBS in East Central Illinois when we were doing a church plant near the university. And uh, it was called Wake Up and Live, and it was designed for pagans. That was my, that was my thought, you know, because I, I know what pagan feels like. And... Um, it was 10 minutes between Sports score, Scoreboard and this guy named Charles Osgood's news break on CBS. And um, I did that for nine years. And it was back in the day when you made long-distance calls, way before cell phones. They had the cords and all that. You had to go through an operator to call. And I called the West Coast to talk to my father-in-law. And as it rang, the operator said to me, I like your radio program. I said, how do you know I have a radio program? She said, well, you're Dick Foth, aren't you? I said, yeah how did you know that? She said, I could tell by your voice. Jesus Christ is the voice voice of the Most High God. And, and he is defined specifically as the word, which is sort of conceptual. It's vague. And I said, why would he say the word? Well, the original word in the original language here in the Greek is logos. And it, you know that's where we get the word logic or logical or logistics. The, the, it, it's a reasoned thing. And part of John's audience were, today we would call them thought leaders, but they were Greek philosophers, and they had a group called Stoics. When, when I use the word Stoic, I say, be Stoic, tough it out, suck it up, stiff upper lip. But Stoics said, essentially, suck it up, because whatever's happening to you, there's a reason behind it, and they said that about the universe. There has to be a reason, and John comes along and hitchhikes on that, and says, there is a reason behind the universe, let me tell you his name. His name is Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made. So he starts there. And then it goes on. Read this with me if you will. It will be on the screen. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Life and light are the expressions in Scripture of God's presence. I mean, glory, light, shows up. We're talking about awestruck by glory. Wherever God shows up in Scripture, you have light, whether it's in Genesis or uh, 1, or whether it's the rainbow after the the flood, or whether it's the pillar of fire through the wilderness when the Israelites are being led out of Egypt, or whether it's the star over Bethlehem, or whether it's Paul being knocked down by light on the road to kill people like us in Acts. God's presence is characterized by light, and life-giving. That's who he is. Even the tiniest amount of light defeats immense darkness. The tiniest amount. Darkness has no power, has no defense for light. When you turn on a light, the darkness goes away. I was sharing a thought like this once back in D.C., and I happened to be a retired three-star general in the group. His name was Teddy, and Teddy said, you know, I have, a, I have an illustration of that, Dick. Back in, during Vietnam, I was responsible for Army helicopter stuff, and I can remember standing in, the, in pitch black night in the jungle of Vietnam in a clearing, and we were trying to land some helicopters, and I landed them all by the single light of a Zippo cigarette lighter because a tiny bit of light chases away darkness uh, like nothing else. It's the only thing that does. And so... Light is the tangible expression of God's presence. Light is the tangible expression of God's presence. It's interesting, John echoes Genesis 1. Genesis 1 starts this way. In the beginning, God created. That verb means create something out of nothing. uh, And his first words are, God's first words in the text are, let there be light. That's the basis for whatever follows. Back in the early 1970s, I met a fellow at the University of Illinois by the name of Dr. Howard Momstead. And I've talked to you about Howard before, but his special, he was an analytical chemist, one of the fo- type, top five spectroscopists in the world. I had no idea what that is. A spectroscopist is an analytical chemist that uses light for scientific discovery and measurement. And he was a radar officer on a destroyer in the Second World War. And he came back after the war and he married chemistry and electronics and it developed into this whole thing. So when you go to the hospital to get blood drawn, back when I was younger, you had to mix it with other stuff and use the centrifuge. And all. Now all they do is take it, put it in a laser light and it tells you like instantly, this, you got too much of this or not enough of that. That's what Howard was involved in. He was a pioneer in that area. And I met him. He was 20 years my senior. But I I met him, and um, I just just thought it was God's great sense of humor because Howard had a faith journey, but he really came to faith during our time together, and he asked if I would baptize him just like these young people were baptized. So here's this world-class scientist who had written nine textbooks used in over 500 universities around the world, and he said very simply, I want to follow Jesus. I want to publicly declare who he is in my life. And I went up to his, his summer home in Lake Michigan and baptized him in the lake. Here's this guy who got five units of D in chemistry 1A at Cal Berkeley 100 years ago, baptizing a world-class scientist. And it's like, God just had to chuckle about that. Why don't we do? put the dumb guy with the smart guy, see how that goes, you know? <laughs> And so I asked Howard one day, why do you think God said let there be light like it's the first thing in the middle? And he looked at me, he was very kind. He didn't look at me like I had a third eye in the middle of my forehead. He just looked at me and just said, well, Dick, it's the, uh, it's the basis for the cosmos, for the, you know, you know that's what makes the, the world work. I mean, there is no color without light. If we turn off the lights in here, You might be wearing a beautiful red shirt or a yellow something or whatever it is. It's not yellow when it's dark. It's not red when it's dark. Color is a function of light. Distance. Some of you are contractors and builders or road graders or whatever. And if I want to know exactly how far it is from this podium to that exit sign, all I need is a laser transit which shoots a, a beam of light to that and it will tell me exactly. Because wavelength is the exact unit of measurement for distance. It's the basis of of time. The the, the atomic clock is based on light. It's it's the basis for food. If you're going to go for lunch like now, or if you're in ranching or farming, it's the food chain. You don't have burgers. You don't have veggies. You don't have ice cream without light. It's the basis for life. And it's also, as we've come to know, the basis for communication. Your cell phone, your TV, your movies, the, the food scanners at the grocery stores, the, the radar thing that the officer got you with, the other, that, that thing, that's all you say, really? Anyway, that, that whole thing, it's all light. And of course, John didn't know about cell phones and movies and TV. He didn't know that all he knew was the visible part of light, because there's infrared and there's X-ray, and, and on one end of the spectrum of light, you've got TV. So you got Dr. Phil over here, and on the other hand, you, on the other hand, you have the surgical unit MCR where they do gamma knife brain surgery, all because of light. And my question is, do you think God knew? I think He knew. All right, John didn't know. But God knew. And so you have this thing where healing comes because of light. When we were in India as kids, I had rickets, which is a vitamin D deficiency that messes with your legs. And they didn't have medication. Now we take omega-3 and all kind of stuff, but, uh, or vitamin D su- supplements, whatever it is. But, uh, but they put you in the sun when you have rickets because sun is a, the primary source of vitamin D and it heals your legs. In the middle of this song, this, this massive conceptual song, he drops in a guy called John the Baptist. Listen to how it reads. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. There you go. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now John is talking to a different, we think, to a different part of his audience. This is not the Greek philosophers now. He's talking to a group of people who... Decades after Jesus still thought that John the Baptist was the Messiah. There was a group of those folks. And so he, and when you read John's gospel, John the Baptist himself says, I'm not the guy, okay? But he's a witness to the guy. So John the Baptist is the pivotal witness in the story. He's the person that God chose to come to introduce Jesus the Messiah. They've had no prophet in Israel for 400 years, and this wild bearded guy (laughs) comes out of the desert, he's wearing funny clothes, he's eating funny stuff, he's saying, okay, everybody out of the pool, or whatever prophets do. He was doing that. But his message was, here comes the kingdom and it looks like this carpenter. That was his thing. And so John, the author, makes the value of the power of a witness to the light that is Jesus. My friend Howard Momstead, that elite scientist, he lived in a pretty dark world. It was called academia in the sense of universities, of course, are for enlightening of the mind, but there are many, many places in universities that aren't about enlightening of the heart. They just aren't, and I love universities, and I love university students. They're my favorite group, if you will, I mean, just in terms of just hanging with, right? But boy, it's a challenge, and if you're a faculty member on a university campus, it, you are under the gun Every day, that's just how it works. And he became like a John the Baptist, if you will, a voice crying in the wilderness. About that same time, in 1972, I took our family from Illinois, where we were doing a church plant, and I said, you got it for a vacation. Let's go to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I was there when I was nine, more than 20 years ago. I want to show you the place. So we went down and, uh, and went to that same pier in 1972. And on that same on that pier, I met this guy. And his name was Charles Daniels, and he was an Outer Banks long net fisherman. So John, the author of the book, he'd, he'd have like Charles Daniels, because he would that, right? Uh, let me just put this parenthetically. Two years afterwards, in 1974, there was a young man in northern Colorado who had lost his dad to cancer at the age of 14. And at the age of 16... A mutual acquaintance who knew Charles Daniels introduced this young man to this, to this uh, fisherman guy that I'm going to have you meet in just a minute. And uh, that young man, as a 16-year-olds, went to the Outer Banks to fish in the summer. And that young man's name was Derry Northrop. It's still Derry Northrup. <laughs> I didn't know that for quite a while after, and we found out we knew the same guy. And he, he went fishing in the Atlantic. He went 300 miles off the coast, thought he was going to die. But obviously he didn't. He's still here. So anyway, three years ago, I took our, our grandso- one of our grandsons, Sam, who was 18. I wanted him to meet Charles Daniels, and I was going to something else on the East Coast. And so I took him with me, and we went to see the place where the Wright brothers launched a uh, flight. And I said, now, now I want to introduce you to a guy who was launched into Jesus some years ago, and he's a fisherman guy. And so we went down, and uh, here's my friend Charles Daniels. This is Charles and me. I'm, I'm sitting on that pier when we went on that 1972 vacation, and this guy comes walking down the pier, and he's tall and strapping. This is Charles at 90. I met Charles at 40. And, uh, he comes walking down the pier, he's in khakis, he's got them rolled up to his knees, he's tanned, he's barefoot, because those long neck guys, they fish barefoot. And he's got deep set blue eyes and he's handsome and broad-shouldered. Sort of reminded me of myself. And I, no, actually it didn't, yeah. Just kidding, as you know. But the, but the fact is, he walked up to me and started talking to me in this wonderful English dialect. Sort of a blend between North Carolina drawl and Old England. And he walked up and engaged me in conversation. So I said, can you tell Sam, my grandson, about the time we met Charles? And he said, yeah. And so I recorded Charles while he was doing this. It's not a great recording. And you got to listen, because the accent will get you a little bit. Unless you're from the South, you might get a little easier. But here, here, uh, here is Charles talking to my grandson, Sam. So have
1: you ever this man sitting on the pier? I never seen him, of course. On the pier? On the, on the fish house dock and uh, so i walked up and i leaned against the pole to held the roof and i said uh, where are you from starting a conversation you know he said i'm from urbana illinois so i said my lord i don't know where that place is and so then i asked him what kind of work do you do he said i'm a preacher And I said, well, I ain't no preacher, but I just got saved a few years ago. And I said, what kind of church do you preach in? And he said, Assembly of God. Then all of of the ice that we were on fell through. Then he was, I mean, we were just on the same page.
0: When he found out we were from the same church background, all of a sudden, we're buddies. We're just right there. The thing is, I think the Apostle John would really like Charles Daniels because they knew about long net fishing. I think the Apostle John would like my friend Howard Momstead from the University of Illinois because they could talk about light till the cows come home, if you will. This is what John says in verses 9 through 11. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Literally, it says, he came to his own things, his own creations, because without him was not anything made, but his own people would not respond to him. My point is that rejection is never the end of the story. You know what it feels like to be rejected. You toss an idea out. Some guy says, that's the stupidest idea I ever heard. I mean, you know, or, or you have some position or some stance. Or you, Sometimes you personally got rejected. So we know the feeling of that. But why would light that would illuminate my world and bring me healing and perspective and, and friendship, why would I reject that? I think probably out of fear. Because when you walk into the light, you get exposed. When you walk into the light, you can be seen or seen through. Or maybe it's the fear of being called to action. I don't know what it was. But he goes on to say, Yet to all who did receive him, John one twelve and 13, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The, the authority to become kids. Hardly will you find authority and kids in the same sentence. Okay, But you get the authority to be kids. What a fascinating idea. And it's to those who believed. John challenges the reader to do this one thing, believe. In his writing, he never uses the the noun belief like a system. He uses the action verb to believe 98 times in his gospel because it's all about stepping in and growing in that. So... I asked Charles to tell my grandson about what it was like to come to faith, and Charles went on to say, I was 10 years in the Merchant Marine. He said, I come home. He talked, like, I can't do his accent, but he said, oh, I you was know, you know, 10 years in the Merchant Marine, six different ships. There weren't no room for Jesus on them ships. And he said, I, I come home and somebody invited me to church. And I didn't want to, he said, I'm a big drinker. I had a drunk the night before, but it was a miserable drunk. I couldn't even enjoy it. And he said, "I, I decided I'd go to church. And this is what he said.
1: So I decided I would go. And when I went in that door of that church, and they started singing that first song, God's presence, just Wanted me to cry like a little baby. And I was drunk, doing everything I could to hold back tears. And I didn't want to be a crying while they were singing. And I, I wanted to get out of there. But God's presence was there in such a way.
0: He went on to tell Sam how he sat in the, in the pew that day and just struggled back and forth because he wanted to respond but he he wasn't sure how old because he thought maybe he was too far away. This is what he said
1: sitting in my seat, bowing my head while the order call was given, and I said, "God, will you help me? Uh, help me, take that first step, and I got the help, but I need you know God is just." All you gotta do is ask him sure. to be saved, ain't he? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he couldn't made salvation no easier for all of us. He <laughs> wouldn't make no difference if I've been to church all my life until I was 18 years old. And then I just never mother wanted me to join the church one time when I was fifteen. And I said, Mother, I don't know. What it is, but it wouldn't be no good to be join the church. Me and God don't have a thing in common. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's no good to join the church. Me and God ain't got no thing in common. And finally, he did make the move, and as he put it, he went to the altar, made a commitment of his life that night. And then the problem was he had to go home and tell Molly, his wife. This is what happened when he told Molly
1: come home and told Miley. I said, Miley, I've done it. I've gone to an altar. And it was a dead silence. You could have heard a pin drop. The first thing she said that she didn't say, it went through her mind. My Lord, he's gone, got religion. I'd rather he come home drunk again, she said.
0: I'd rather he come home drunk again. Charles started believing and he turned into a John the Baptist in his community. This is how the scripture says it as we continue, and I'm wrapping this up. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen how he lights it up. And if there's anything we need in our homes, in our lives, for relationships, for whatever, the two things we need are we need truth so we know what reality is. And we all know we need grace along the way. And it comes in this package called Jesus in the the cradle. I love this statement. I've put it up several times before. A.W. Tozer said it this way, what comes to mind when I think about God is the most important thing about me. What comes to mind when I think about God is the most important thing about me. What if the first 14 verses of John came to mind? The beginnings, creation, light chasing away darkness, seeing myself in the story, embracing grace and truth in Jesus, believing, what if that was it? I mean, well, I love remembering Howard Momstead from the University of Illinois, my light guy. I learned so much from him. He was John the Baptist in academia, a witness without peer. I love recording Charles Daniels, my 90-year-old fisherman friend. He was so grateful for that night. He walked into that church, and the singing made him want to cry like a baby. He became another John the Baptist to a large community of seafaring, hard-fighting, hard-drinking fishermen. Very different crowd. Then where Howard Moms different universe than Howard Moms did. But for 60 years, he became a witness to his friends. And they started walking toward the light and into glory. So much so that when I was down there some years later, he told me about the fact that the seagoing guys, the guys that went out in the Atlantic as a fleet, they'd pause offshore and somebody would get on the CB radio before they sailed off east. And they'd say, let's have a prayer and one of these guys that was so hardened who had been softened up by the creator of the universe would get on the, on the CB radio and pray for the entire fleet. Howard and Charles came from two different worlds. They were both discoverers, one in the laboratory and one on the sea. They never met in the flesh, but they were brothers in spirit because they loved the light. Howard went home to Jesus. Eighteen years ago at the age of 81 from the island of Hawaii where he had gone to start a university with a friend called University of the Nations. Charles joined him there four weeks ago at the age of 93. We talk about death in a lot of ways. Some of us said, well, John died. Somebody said, well, Harriet passed away. Somebody says, well, Fred crossed over, went to the other side. In my background, we used to say, last night, James went home to glory. Howard and Charles are in glory they believed and the light showed up and you should have been around them when they prayed different words different accents same spirit of the most high god when they prayed glory showed up i am the light of the world where i am jesus says there is no darkness